I'm Grace, CEO and founder of Cultural Calculator, and this is The Culture Coach, where we share the wisdom and knowledge from the trailblazers who have broken new ground through their approach to leadership, team building, and ultimately creating cultural change for the better. Created and sponsored by Cultural Calculator. Today, we have with us Paul Lindley, OBE, who has done so many things. I don't actually know where to begin with how to introduce you. Um, He was the founder of Ella's Kitchen and I first actually heard about him when I was at a startup event and someone referenced him as one of the nicest UK entrepreneurs out there. Um, He went on to scale up Ella's Kitchen to become the biggest baby food brand in the UK. And since then, and since being acquired, he's gone on to do so much work being the chair of the London Child Obesity Task Force. That's right, yeah. The chair of the Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights Organization. But I want to hand over to you, Paul, to sort of elaborate on, I guess, how would you even introduce yourself at this point in your life when you are involved in so many different different things? Grace, thank you. A bit of build up like that, like puts me on a bit of a pedestal. <laughs> There's only one way to go from there, but we'll see what I can do. Um, you know, think about that question: Who am I? I'd spent when I built Ellis Kitchen. I spent so much time thinking about what Ellis Kitchen was. What's what's its mission? What's it stand for? What's its values? That when I sold it and moved on and thought, what am I going to do the rest of my life? I stood back and thought, well, what am I? Who am I? What are my values? And I've taken some time to work it out. But I think, you know, I'd explain myself and my sort of purpose, if you like, how I see what I, why I'm here, um, is to help make the world richer in opportunities, ideas, and compassion. They're the three things that I hope are values that I put out there, but also the things that I'm interested in making the world richer in. And so I put my fingers in things that I think can increase the number of ideas and make those ideas reality, increase the sort of opportunity for imagination to get out there and innovation come from it, and the idea of compassion, kindness, and empathy in the world, make a more human world, which hopefully will lead into a lot of the conversation we'll have, because I think we live in a world where humanness is undervalued and decisions are made without human beings, but at the center of the consequences of those decisions, and that's where culture and the way we socially interact with each other at home and at work and elsewhere is 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 really important and I'm fascinated by so this is exactly why ever since I actually even started this podcast like for me the aim with every guest is someone who is an example of creating cultural change for the better in their own way and for me I feel like you have taken that to such an extreme level in a way the more that I sort of read and understood about Ella's Kitchen it really you get such a sense of the mission being at the heart of it and the mission was actually about helping children live healthier lives have healthier relationships with food and your work since then has gone way beyond that mission so as you kind of reflect on where you are now and you mentioned those different aspects of opportunities ideas compassion like what would you say your sort of mission focus is within all of that well I think I'm kind of obsessed by change and I don't know why but I think we can do better whatever level that's on we're 
we're an animal that thrives when it can adapt best to changing environments and the environment's changing all the time and we thrive when we help each other become better but the idea that we are whether that's in our personal lives or our business or as a nation or as a, a sort of human beings that we have got as good as it's going to get kind of horrifies me and i think you know this idea of imagination and ideas are unlimited and unique to human beings and what i can try and do with my mission is to try and unlock some of them try and whether that's connecting people connecting ideas um, whether it's facilitating uh, and being convening of people or whether it's my own ideas and trying to get them going the fact that you and I, anyone watching, listening to this today can woken up having had a dream last night thinking about something that doesn't exist and go off and make it exist is incredible. And that gives me great optimism that, you know, there are sunnier days ahead and that, that, that um, it's worth getting up in the morning. So that's kind of my mission. You know, why, why did the person who first invented the wheel was that, was that the first person to think about a wheel? Oh, I had a dream of an idea about this round thing that would make it easy to move things around. What didn't the person who had that first dream or that first thought, what, what didn't they have that made that a reality? And why did the person who invented it have that? Right up to COVID vaccines or anything that's very modern that, that we've managed to, 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 to invent. And so what is that magic mixture, magic recipe, the, the splash of ingredients that we need to make ideas become realities? And that's, that's whether that's in businesses and creating profit and prosperity and purpose from that, whether it's in government and the way we structure society and what is, what is, the, you know, what is the point of a, a, a society, what, what are, what's the point of success or what is success in a society, I think, through. And... Um, you know, which which has led me since selling Ellis Kitchen and moving on to try and use the skills and passions that I have. I guess the skills around entrepreneurship, which raises the question of why, to me, why don't we use entrepreneurship more often outside of business? Why is it seen as a business thing? Why doesn't education or government or public policy or charities use entrepreneurial thinking more to try and create something new um, and uh, and move us on? Um, and then how can we create a world that is better, that, that increases children's well-being, welfare uh, and rights? Um, and marrying those things to, two things together is what I've um, focused on. Um, but, you know, if we get in deep, I think one of, that's one of my challenges is focus. And I, since, since moving on from Ellis Kitchen, I've done eight, nine, ten things, all of which interest me and all of which cover those two areas of entrepreneurship and and, and children's well-being but maybe you know i've copped on that you know if i look at what my little mission is and the, those those three things maybe i should be doing two or three of those things much deeper and that's the sort of crossroads that i'm at in my life um but i do know wherever i land the ability to make the changes um involves working with people other people because we do things together better um and um that's where sort of culture and understanding motivations and behaviors um, comes in. And that's where the magic is of, of human beings that we can together do much more than we could do individually. The sum of our parts is much more than the individual adding up of the number of people that we are. So if you were to break down 
you reference that kind of entrepreneurial mindset and actually, you know, why would we silo that in a business world? Like this is something that is actually accessible to everyone and can be so useful in other areas of life or the world. How would you kind of break down or define what is an entrepreneurial mindset? I think an entrepreneurial mindset comes from the two, maybe I'm saying this because I would say this, but it's the two values of, of humanity that I value most. And I think they are epitomized most in entrepreneurs. Uh, actually, second most in entrepreneurs, most in toddlers. <laughs> we all have this when we're yeah. four or five years old. And that is a curiosity and a bravery. We need both of those things to change the world. And that's an entrepreneurial mindset. Entrepreneurs are curious about why something isn't possible, why somebody says something isn't possible, and curious about I mean, making sure that it, you give it a good go to make it possible. Um, and then the bravery to uh, take the challenge on, to evaluate risk, uh, to stand up to your critics, to um, get up when it's all going wrong, because the odds are it will go wrong for an entrepreneur, and just keep that persistence and that determination through. Um, so I... I, I think they are the two greatest um, sort of values of, of human beings. And I think they're epitomized in toddlers and entre entrepreneurs. So if we could have more bravery and curiosity in government and in charities in our civic space, you know, I think we would find some of the s s challenges, solve some of the challenges um, of society quicker. So this was another reason I really wanted Paul on here because I am so fascinated by like I could sit and watch a toddler, just the way that they interact with the world. I do so much like work and self-reflection on remembering me as a little girl. Like one story that comes to mind that my, my parents always um, reference was when they took me to Disneyland and there was like a parade of Esmeraldas going past and we're there with my grandparents, my auntie, my uncle, and no one knew where I was. And I had run away. They looked up and I was on a float, mm -hmm. like dancing. And um, that, like I re like remind myself like, wow, like the bravery, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That willingness to be like, that looks fun over there and just running like unfiltered, nothing holding me back, getting up on stage, dancing, not even thinking twice about it. And as an adult, like I would never do that. Or, But I know that she's in there somewhere, but accessing yeah. that energy and that freedom. So part of... Um Part of the reason we all don't do that is evolutionary and quite sensible <laughs> and the fact that our frontal cortex has grown, we become aware of consequences and, um, a, 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 and take responsibility. And that's a good thing. Mm. The people that didn't have that, you know, their, their genes aren't with us anymore. But part of it is um, society and culture, I guess. And that we teach people through parenting, through our education system, through broader society to conform basically for conformity's sake. And I think we want outliers. If we're going to solve problems, if we're going to make a better world, we need those people who don't accept the status quo because the world moves every day and status quo actually puts us backwards. And so when I look to how can, how, what, what model can I find to try and explain how we should be thinking and acting more like that, I go back to a toddler, the most perfect human being as I see it, when you and I... We're 
five years old, we will have had the self-confidence and a free thinking and an imagination that held no bounds. And for some reason, too much of that is taken out. So I sort of think, well, you know, can we rediscover some of that? Which Rediscover is much easier than learning something from you. How, what tools can we use? How can we encourage more people to delve into that person that they once were and accept failure? Because each one of us has got the privilege to walk you know, didn't just decide to walk and get up and walk. We fell over 500 times. And each time we learned something new that we did and corrected. And the 499th time we fell over, the next time we got it all right. So why don't we do that when we're doing other things and trying something new? So I think, you know, I, I don't want to paint all toddlers as, you know, they're all the same. We're all very different. And, and the circumstances of your childhood obviously make a huge, huge impact. But we are wired to have that curiosity and we are wired to think divergently and really explore and find things out for ourselves. And that's what we don't do enough as adults. Mm. And it feels like a lifetime's work to understand what gets in the way of doing it and actually um reconnecting to that that sense of I guess our purest selves and the freedom to be our purest selves not disregarding the wisdom of adulthood and wise action as we know it as an adult but actually being able to have the both both of them yes. side by side one of one of my roles is I'm the chancellor of the University of Reading so I get the privilege of giving out degrees which is fantastic so it's such a happy day for everybody in the room and there's a sense of achievement celebrating achievement but also it's it's a seminal moment in people's lives because they're leaving their youth behind or their childhood behind even though these people are obviously 21 22 and more but um and and they're they're finding themselves and one of the things I say in my my speech or when I'm speaking to them it is really, you know, my advice to you is to be you. Don't be the person that all your friends think you are or don't be exactly like all of your friends or the person your parents want you to be or be you. And you are unique. You are different, different set of experiences, a different set of ideas and thoughts than anybody that's ever lived. And there could be something in there that changes the world or there will be something in there that helps you find your passions, find your uh, tolerances, um, find your mission. And, and, and as you're opening the doors to the rest of your life, use that, use that individual uniqueness that you are to find you, be comfortable and confident in that, be curious about who you are and be brave enough to be that person. And that is quite hard in a culture where conformity, especially at that age and perhaps, you know, teenage years and a little bit younger is, um, is so important to not stand out, but we've, you know, we've got to um, have the confidence and to 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 be the that unique, special person that each of us has the potential to be. And I really feel your passion as you say that, and it makes me emotional even hearing you say it because it feels, wow, like such a. It's almost such a shame that everyone doesn't feel that way and when you speak about it it comes with such passion that I'm so curious about you and you know are you at a point in your life where you kind of retrospectively have like joined the dots of of curiosity and bravery and these things being important or is this something that you have felt very in touch with from a young age and it's kind of stayed with you what has your journey been with those toddler-like qualities? Well, I think 
um, I think there's a little boy still inside my head that still sees or my eyes, or my eyes, you know, doesn't see me as a 56 year old man with gray hair and um, uh, should be getting more conservative uh, according to culture and everything. Yet I'm challenging the world and looking through. I just think that little boy has not come out of my head. He's the person that's still inside me. That's the true me still. And, you know, I'm blessed by that. And I don't know why that is so. But, you know, I have been blessed by, you know, pretty idyllic childhood and very positive memories of that and great parents who encouraged me to be curious and, and brave and, and gave me a set of values and ex to explore the world. Um, um, and then I've seen it through my own children, the challenges of growing up and of being your own person and finding yourself. Um, but I've certainly, I mean, so I can't speak for, you know, people. Um, I can speak for this person. And I just find my curiosity grows with age, I think. And um, without <laughs> getting morbid or anything, you know, there's less time ahead than there was yesterday for me. And so I do feel as though I'd like to make the most of that time and, you know, care less about what people think, I suppose, with later age and what I think is, 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 um, is, is right and um, air those views and be very happy to be challenged and find that I fail in pushing them forward. But, you know, the 5% of the time that I actually change someone else's mind or change a policy or change, um, you know, the direction of my children's lives or young people that I work with's lives, that's the reward. Um, so, you know, maybe it's taken me into my 50s to find that and I've had, you know, lots of highs, um, uh, you know, ups and downs through life as we all have, but um, try to learn from those and learn from the lows and um, and use it. I, I think it's a, you know, I'm in this extraordinary position that I never considered that I would be in where I founded a company that has been really successful both financially but also respected as a leader in how to do business. It's a B corporation. It's got a mission behind it. It's team you know feels ownership of of, of working there um how can i take what i could use that privilege of experiencing that and the financial benefits and the position benefits and everything that come with it and then go off and play golf or something and what a waste that is and and all that society has invested in me to get me to that position because i might have had a great idea it certainly took a team with me to execute that idea and then it took everybody that I don't know who's paid the taxes for the roads that between the factory and the supermarket where my products went on and the police and the fire services and everything to keep those products safe and the education that my consumers had to know what food to buy and all of that that's nothing to do with me that has the privilege of the country that I live in and the time that I live in that was civilized enough for all that to happen so I am part of something much bigger and I do feel that there is it's not payback's the wrong word it is just part of the continuum but that's part of that's part of the enjoyment of um the sharing the experiences and the knowledge on and um no idea whether that any of that makes sense but i got to an um, age where i don't, <laughs> don't you know it does to me and if it does to five people that are it, listening to this then that's brilliant no it's amazing listening to you sort of talk about actually your connection and acknowledgement of the bigger picture, because I kind of reflect back on when we were in lockdown and COVID and, you know, when people would come out, do the 
like what do you call it like patting the pants wringing the pants um, yeah. I don't know do you know as like an applaud for the NHS and it felt like everyone became hyper aware of the people doing working in the food shops or like do you know what I mean all the frontline workers be it the postman versus someone on the Tesco's till um, versus the people in our hospitals there was like this real sense of mm collective connection to that bigger picture which so often gets overlooked it does and it was it's, i found that time fascinating in that um talking about culture today how quickly culture changed because people wanted it to change nobody told us to change but the fact that you know a month before um the coronavirus came along um all the political conversations were about unskilled migrants, and there were too many of them here. A month after, we were talking about frontline workers and how critical they were to our economy and our society and our health. And they ultimately were the same people, yet looked through through different lenses. You know, and the worry is that as, as the as the pandemic recedes, that culture changes back to. You know the the, the 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 divide between they are us and they are them is a core part of my mission. Is how can we how can we make more of us us? How can we see us in more people? How can we meet more people that we think are not like us and find out are like us? And that is part, as I see, as the, the is the key to unlock part of the opportunities to believe that there are sunnier days ahead and tomorrow will be better than yesterday because we can find that commonality in humanity across our city across our you know village across our country and across the world that will that will help find the solutions um to understanding each other and to you know the next vaccine or the cure for cancer or the compassion that we need when uh we need care in our old age or anything in between it shows as well the role of of curiosity in that, right? Because to really unlock understanding, there's got to be a drive of curiosity in the first place. And um, yeah, I was um, with someone the other day who kind of spoke about knowledge can be such a clamp on our curiosity. Like what we already know can really clamp down on finding out anything else and they gave the example of the sky being blue and you could stop there like we can all agree the sky is blue full stop but actually if you went and looked up like how the wavelengths of sunlight works actually the sky is violet and blue but the human eye can't quite see the violet but it's just interesting how you can take something that seems so factual full stop nothing more to see or know here as actually a metaphor for how we probably do that all over life. We don't find out what's sitting right under our noses. Well, I think um, it opens up a whole area about perspective. Um, you know, I, I've come to think that there are very few, if any, things where there is a single answer, single right answer to anything. The sky is not blue at night. It's many colours. If you were a cat, I'm sure it looks a different colour. Um but, you know, if you tell me one and one plus equals two, um, that sounds like that must be true. 
but you know, 1.3 plus 1.3 rounded to a decimal point is still equal to, but actually 1.3 plus 1.3 equals three if you're going to do it to a decimal place, it's 2.6. So, you know, I, I, it comes back to, you mentioned at the beginning that I work with Robert F. Kennedy Human Rights. Now, Bobby Kennedy um, ran for president of the United States in the 1960s, and he is my political hero because he... Um, expressed everything in terms of uh, dignity and respect and, and humanness around politics and around political policy and really captured a moment. But in that last campaign that he had, he used to quote George Bernard Shaw the whole time. And it's a quote that's really close to my heart and this idea about um, uh, perspective and possibilities. Because um, the quote is that some people see things as they are and ask why. I dream things that never were and ask why not. So it's one part of curiosity to say, I see that as it is, and I wonder why it doesn't change. But it's a whole level different of curiosity to see something that doesn't exist and wonder why it doesn't exist. And that, again, open, how, how do we not conform? How do we get so that we're not conforming to only see what exists and wonder how it can change and not what doesn't exist and wonder why it doesn't? And, you know, that opens up, you know, nothing is impossible from that. Muhammad Ali, another great quote, another great hero of mine, um, you know, he, he spoke about nothing being impossible. It's just a small set of words for small people who are too lazy to make change or, you know, uh, haven't got the persistence to, to, to force that change. And again, that's where entrepreneurs come from. Most entrepreneurs who've got a unique idea, you know, there is a one 5% chance that it will happen because it's hard because nobody's, maybe they have thought about it before, but nobody's done it because it's hard. And um, by ingenuity and creativity and imagination and hard work and collective work and, and collaboration, you find the angle and luck and, and you, you change something. So, um, you know, that if we, more of us could think about what's not before us and wonder why, um, that opens up a new level of uh, possibilities. On your entrepreneurial journey with that, because you, and I haven't actually mentioned this yet, but we keep referencing toddlers. <laughs> For those of you that are watching, and for those of you listening, Little Wins is Paul's book, which is the huge power of thinking like a toddler. And it walks through your entrepreneurial journey with building Ella's Kitchen. And one of the things that I really love that you reference in it is this idea of the monsters under the bed. And, you know, there's so much resilience in what you speak of, like being able to not accept impossible as impossible, but actually persist and make change happen. And that is such an inevitable part of building a business like you're going to have things that might feel seemingly impossible at times that you've got to overcome and I'd love to know on your journey with that like how you handled those moments where you thought Do you know what this is actually really really tough and I know that you kind of referenced that there was a sort of 18 month period actually from deciding you were going to do this to getting your first big sale and getting into Sainsbury's and it's often I find as a solo founder that it's in the gaps where it's it can feel the toughest because you really are reliant on that belief and not the evidence of the outside world saying yes this is a great idea mirroring back to you like you're gonna kill it um so yeah 
kind of long-winded way of asking you in your journey like how did you handle those monsters under the bed in your own inner experience um so this is easy to answer easier to answer with hindsight because i'm going to put a lot of logic and okay this happened and that happened happened, and at the time i'm sure it's a little more chaotic and a little bit more grasping at straws and things um but the things I've learned from that, and I will go back to say how I felt at the time, but, you know, there, if there are monsters under the bed, there's only so much that you can do about them. You can contain them, you can keep them a distance, you can um, minimize their impact on you. And so, you know, as you were trying to build a business, there are a million things that are going to go wrong. Some of which you have got, most of which you've got no control over at all, but you spend endless energy thinking about, worrying about, and trying to control. And the thing I've learned is concentrate on the things that you can control. You know, many people get obsessed by their competitors. Well, you can't really control anything they're doing. If they're they're doing what you're doing, they're copying you, and it's going to be veneer thin of what that looks the same, but under the surface, they've got no depth to it. They've got no mission. They've got no values behind it. They don't know what's coming next. They're waiting for you to do what comes next, and they may copy you in. They will be sought through in the end, and they will have a less successful business. So don't worry about them. Keep an eye on them. Learn from them. But, you know, spend the worry to the, around the things that you can control. So that, that was one thing. Um, I think when you're finding solutions um, to difficult, intractable problems, the, you talked about the London Child Obesity Task Force that I chaired. You know, childhood obesity is really complicated and easy to think it is an impossible, we're doomed, it's just getting worse and there's nothing we can do about it. And I think from that and from the experiences I had at the beginning with Ella's, the three things that you really need to put in place or to to have that can solve impossible problems is first of all relationships you're not going to solve any of this on your own however brilliant you are you're going to do it with other people who you have inspired and motivated to want to go on this journey with you and think about the solution to the problem when having a shower walking their dog whatever not just when you're paying them at their desk or uh, there's a professional uh, relationship. So relationships really matter. Second thing is resources also matter. And you can't achieve your entrepreneurial goals without resources, whether that's money or, or human resources or whatever, But um, and society problems. So we need to put money or resor- assets or f- f- uh, focus uh, at resources. But the third thing, which is often overlooked, is recognition. And recognizing those small steps that you take, those little bits of um achievements that you make in this long long journey otherwise the journey is going to seem 50 miles long all the time but if you've taken 10 steps it's 50 miles less 10 steps if you've taken half a mile it's not it's now 49 miles i'd think not 49.5 around round down to make it feel better but you know you're making a progress towards that thing and you can get towards impossible goals so there are many things in culture and in society that have changed that over our generation, my generation, my, the difference between mine and your generation, say, that, you know, would not be, you take for granted in your um, age group and your, the, the way you think about things that wouldn't have been taken for granted in mine. And we don't really recognize that. I don't know, sexist or racist jokes in public is just a, mile, a million miles away from what it was in the 70s and 80s. And that's just changed. Now, why has that changed? load load of reasons but i don't think we've recognized in a world where a lot of bad things have happened the small good things that happen actually accumulatively add up 
And um, so it's a long way of saying rec recognize your small steps. So when you go back to the, the, the question uh, um, around, you know, daunting task of starting a company and trying to get market share, you know, I was in a, an industry where all my competitors were these big multinationals, but I couldn't worry about them because they were going to do their thing. I had to do something different to them. All my customers were big, massive supermarkets. There was a big power imbalance there. I had to understand why they may be considering listing us, why I might be different to the others once we were listed, and what it was they needed most prioritized to keep listed and to keep extended listed. And um, so relationships, going back to relationships, matter there. But... Um, I, I got through those sort of big, okay, this, this is all impossible stuff by working with a fantastic team, building that team full of people who were good at the things that I was bad at, um, that were not afraid to challenge me or add to ideas or uh, say when they were happy or unhappy, um, and to find the resources, not necessarily just cash, but cash was important, and I'm an accountant by training, so I knew very much about the difference between cash and profit and why balance sheet's important and all of that. Um, and, you know, you can um, uh, you can use other assets besides cash to, to grow business. So from this tiny, you know, piece of paper in my hand, a mobile phone in the other hand, I've got a business, now I need to phone Tesco and I need to find ingredients and all the rest of it, to, to landing in store um, involved... All those people that 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 um, that the, those plans and resources, but you know the the way we cut through was nothing to do with cash at all. It was the fact that I used to work in the television industry. I knew that some television channels, all television channels, didn't sell all their inventory, advertising inventory, all the time. So what would they do for the times when they hadn't sold a spot? They'd either give it away to an existing client who then next year would come back and say, well, I'm not accepting a higher price. So I want more spots. Or they'd use it for their own promotions, which they owe money. So I said to them, you know, can why don't you give me some of those spots and I will give you pennies of anything that I sell. And then for, we both win. Um, it's affordable for me. And you can show that small businesses can advertise on television. Now, that worked. I didn't need cash for it. Um, both parties won. Consumer won in the end. And now, 20 years later, um, you know, anyone starting a business can find spare advertising inventory on a website or in a local trade magazine or newspaper or something. So you've got to be creative, but you can find resources. So, you know, the, the, in my book, I talk about nine um, attributes, nine skills that uh, toddlers have. You know, persistence and creativity and confidence are three of those nine. And each of those were, the, well, my story just now sort of epitomizes how each of those I had to use um, in developing. And I think there's a final thing is there's a fine line, I think, and critical line between confidence and arrogance. And you have to be confident in yourself as, as, as an entrepreneur and perhaps as a human being. If you're not who who's going to be, and why would anybody want to work with you, invest in you, or buy from you if you weren't confident about yourself? But arrogance is uh, a real putter offer, and you know, arrogant companies or arrogant individuals ultimately do not attract the people who want to be associated with you or work with you over the long term. Um, so that's uh, having the self awareness to recognise 
you know, when you step over that mark of being confident in what you're doing to being arrogant in what you're doing um, is one that I've seen people fail to recognize in the past. Yeah. And also, I think it's making me smile listening to you say that because I've got a friend who said when they're pitching in America versus pitching in the UK, it's like, vastly different like he thinks he's being the most arrogant person in the world when he's pitching in the US but he realized like his normal style of how he'd pitch in the UK when pitching to an American investor they were like oh you don't seem that good and he's like oh I need to really pump up the way that's only placed to culture and understanding cultural differences but also speaks to doing your research and you know not being frankly lazy and saying this is my pitch yeah i'm going to go to all these different clients and pitch the same thing well each of those clients is going to take you for a different reason if they take you or reject Mm. you for a different reason so i was very careful about understanding what the difference is between tesco sainsbury's waitrose ricardo the rest of them um what their mission was, what they were missing, what their buyer's incentive was, who their buyer was, kind of stage of life, and whether they'd get where what, what I was talking about in terms of personal experience, and sort of really doing everything to get the edge to make that person sitting with me feel as though I, you know, I was pitching just to them and not and, and a unique pitch, which I was. That's that's really that's really you know that's part of the difference between you know the successful. Um, uh, pitchers and entrepreneurs and, and, and those that aren't well, I really Paula you have such a strong sense of direction and drive and I'm curious about your your journey as a leader and building a team of people um, someone sent me an article the other day actually where I was like if strategy of a business is a big arrow and every single person in the business is like a tiny arrow within that and mm-hmm. you might have all the arrows pointing in the direction you want to go in or they might all be mm-hmm in every other direction, kind of what we're just saying with, you know, perspectives, like one objective thing may have many, many, many different views of it and how you actually, someone, an individual with a really strong sense of direction, how you managed to sort of build a team that were all moving together Mm -hmm. in that direction. Well, I think, um, I think I thought this starting, I certainly think I know this now having the experience that I've got um my way that I look at life is it's all about people it's all about understanding putting yourself in other people's shoes understanding why they're making their decisions understanding how we can help each other right when you think about business it doesn't on the face of it feel like that you go to business school and you do lots of maths and you do lots of excel sheets and you do strategize and everything but ultimately it's about people it's about trying to understand how you can change the behavior of people and therefore i think that sort of um you know psychology beats economics in business if you understand how people are going to behave or you can nudge them if that's the right word into changing their behavior to buy your product or work for you or work that extra shift or invest that extra dollar, then then that is so, so, so valuable. And I, then I also think that culture ultimately trumps strategy. Both are important, but you know, you can have the greatest strategy in the world. If the culture is toxic, it's not going to go anywhere. And ultimately, what outcome of that is what's undervalued so much in kind of day-to-day life, but it's reputation, I think. We, we're going to take nothing more with us when we're gone than, than the reputation that we leave behind. And, you know, reputation brings trust, it brings inspiration and belief, and that's what true leaders have. Because ultimately, 
the way I looked at it, it's leadership is really important. You've got to see the big picture. You've got to communicate um, that picture. You've got to inspire people and make people feel the ownership that you have and the, the passion that you have to get the ultimate thing done. But once they lose that, or, or it's, it's not really the leader then that makes the success. It's the followers of that leader that make the success. And the leader needs to recognize that and not lose that. And... Um, and then once you've got momentum, you've got a team that really believes in why they're there, they're there, that they recognize that the most recent person and the founder are of equal worth to or equally valuable to the success of the company, that the lowest paid person and the most highly paid person are equally valuable. Neither are there just because charity, they're there because they're fulfilling a role, take that role away and the whole thing doesn't work. So passing on to me, that idea that it is teamwork and culture and humanness that gets us to success um, was my driving thing. Um, I, you know, I was an accountant, so I knew the power of a, a plan and a financial plan and a balance sheet and a profit and less account. But I knew that's just a piece of paper unless somebody, team, goes and makes that a reality. And the team that makes it the reality is the team that is unified in why they're doing it and are motivated for, 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 for similar reasons. And there are structures in, in the business world that can disrupt those motivations, if you like. You know, at one point, I was very keen that our whole team had ownership of the business mentally and physically so we had something called strawberry stock which was like share options we had um so they they, they if they were with the company over a year they got um, some of the company they could take their bonuses as shares um people could opt into a formal management um bonus scheme um we had shareholders i was as an entrepreneur all of us were on different tax incentives of the outcome of if we made a sale. We all paid different rates of tax. I had entrepreneurs relief, EIS made some investors no tax, you know, and, and strawberry stock people would have to pay full income tax. So everything in between. But you know, we were all so the system kind of set up different, resulted in different motivations of people for doing the same thing and adding value in the same way, and so. To get the most out of businesses, um, uh, I think we need to really look at what, what what are motivations and are some of them disincentivizing us all moving in the same direction in the same way for the value that we add. And I think the final thing I'll say on this is a, um, a reflection that the, the word company is often associated, it's, we think of a company as a very economic th entity that we've created, an institution that we've created. When you look at its genesis and the, the, where the word comes from, it comes from the Latin, the Latin of come and panis, which is with bread. And it's about people sitting down together and breaking bread. It's about people. It's about me and you coming down, having a cup of tea and a slice of bread and saying we're both interested in the same thing. We've both got finding we've both got the same appetite for risk. We've both got the same sense of curiosity and bravery that we were going to do something together and we start a company with a goal to develop whatever we're trying to develop and we will get the most success from that if we get the other people on board that will have the same feeling as when we broke bread. And I think, you know, when we ultimately reward people for this for success of companies, we forget that it's about breaking bread and we forget that it's about people and we 
sometimes reward and therefore give motivations in, in, in the wrong sort of way. So the very, very heart of it, a company is nothing more than the people that are there. They may be automated people in the future and now, there may be AI involved in all of that, but ultimately that's people because people have created those robots and those machines and that AI. And ultimately, whether it's you know B2B business that's corporate selling to corporate, it's people selling to people. And those deals will work best when two people understand each other. So I've kind of gone a long-winded way of saying, you know, the best businesses are those that value and recognize and reward people so that they're motivated to their behavior to be aligned and to uh, deliver uh, a mission. And that's sort of thought about that at the very beginning of Ella's Kitchen story. And that's one of those things that gave me confidence as we had dark days and everything went wrong to think, well, this is why I started the business. This is what we can do together. And we did find success. I love how you sort of talk about the role of the company there in terms of creating an environment and even creating policies that support um, that notion of team cohesion, um, support the reality of our humanness and how we are motivated by different things. But you know, you're really providing an environment for those people to to thrive in. And like something behind like the whole design of cultural calculator is this equation that um, a psychologist came up with, which is P plus E equals behavior, the person plus their environment equals what their behavior will be. And actually the role of a company in creating that environment that's going to support that person, have behaviors that lead to a better outcome for them, for the team, for the business. And, you know, the way you speak, I can really hear that you've um, done something amazing at the intersection there between those two places. Well, I think my biggest learning on that was with my work with, with child obesity in London, because Two or three things, uh, snapshots from that. One is very quickly realized that actually the experts in this were not really, you know, the academics or the pediatricians or the public health experts and that. They've obviously got expertise. The real experts are the people with the lived experience of living day to day in an environment where there isn't a supermarket for two miles, there isn't a working kitchen at home, and you're on an unsecured tenancy, and you've got three jobs because none of them will pay enough for, for you to be at home with your kids in the evening, and your kids have got different food preferences, and you've not got enough money, so you're going to give them whatever. So there's endless, 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 endless sort of reasons which all the other experts will have an expertise in one of those areas, but you've got a person there who's telling you they don't go out to... And, you know, have children that will live with obesity. That's a, it's a consequence of the environment that they're living in. So, lived experience of an environment um, can't be underestimated. And for people with businesses, we're talking about entrepreneurship. You know, it's, it's talk to your customers all the time, understand their lives, not just the the bit of their life where they buy your product or service. Understand their whole lives and why it fits in, and they think that it improves their lives. Um, so matched with the environment and the macro stuff that we need to change environments if we are going to solve uh, um, problems, go back to obesity, you know, well, I know there is a correlation and a connection, but, you know, obesity with children has gone up on a third since 2010 and the number of fast food restaurants um, has gone up by uh, just over a third in that same period. 
they're correlated. You know, we could do something about the macro environment by putting some restrictions uh, on, on or planning on where those restaurants could be and how they could be advertised. Um, but with environment, you, you know, your P in your equation goes back to my point around understanding motivations and behaviors and how do we help people change their behavior if the environment doesn't give you options you're not going to be able to take options or make choices if 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 there is no healthy food anywhere within two miles of your home no matter what your education or your wealth is you're not going to be able to, to 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 find it so um being able to change behaviors where you know the um delivery platform type companies can come to you or there's free public transport that you can get there or you can group on kind of buy together or there's all sorts of ways that we can help change that environment that nudges personal behavior but you know i slightly different model that i've used is called combi which is um, capabilities opportunities and motivations equals behavior change but that's the behavior part then there's the environment the macro environment that we need to change and that's why i think that um you know, if we are going to get systemic change in, in 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 our country, say, in those things that I care about, which are ideas, opportunities, and, and compassion, then we have to work together between our different institutions of society, which are just people, again, government is nothing more than a bunch of people, so is business, so is civic society, but it takes a government to set the macro policies around there's no smoking in public places, and it takes us as individuals and a, a movement of, of individuals to say it's not acceptable for somebody to smoke in my home and I'm going to say something about it, and then I guess the other area would be the, the, the financial side and invest, investors and, and how you know, um, many people now exclude cigarette companies, say, from their pension fund pots. That's a decision that we... So all those three things together are the things that make us change to have a healthier society and a healthier individuals. And smoking, say, same can happen with obesity and food, but it takes us all to work together. And it kind of comes back to my basic things. If we saw each other as human beings rather than that's government, that's business, this is civic society. That government is a bunch of individuals who also take their kids to football and are part of civic society and also have pension pots, which is involved in business and, and the economy. And we're all interconnected with each other. And how can we see through that and work together um, to solve some of our problems? I'd love to touch on your upcoming book, Raising a Nation, because it feels, yeah, a perfect segue into that given it's 68 different essays is that right yes. yeah varying from I saw Charlotte Church has written one London Mayor Sadiq Khan's written one um but I'd love to kind of hear from you um I guess your purpose behind that book and the relationship of it to what we're talking about here in terms of getting these different components of society working together to create cultural change yeah. for the better well, hopefully that segue um, concentrates everything we've been talking about so far into why I'm doing it, what I hope to achieve from it and what it is. Because it is big thinking and big picture stuff. I believe change can happen. I am a big picture person. Ultimately, work with many people who can make the detail will happen. But I've got big visions and I don't mind failing in them. That's part of this book. I do think the world needs to be more human and we may need to make decisions around humanity and um, I want to talk about the book in a second, but you know, the book is how can we provide a better future for, for our children um, and, um, and that ties in with that. Um, 
So, so the book is called Raising the Nation, and it is um, how do we build a better future for our children? If we build a better future for our children, we're going to build them for everybody else. The society is nothing more than what happens when children grows up. So, why wouldn't we? It fascinates me. This is this is back to that Kennedy quote of uh, some people see things as they are, and ask why I dream things that never were, and ask not why not. Why have we never had a measure of success in our society? is in being how our children can become the people that they have the potential to be. Because our children obviously win from that, but we all win because we'll have the society where there are more ideas, there's more compassion, there's more um, opportunity for all, uh, there's more tolerance, there's more understanding, uh, there'll be more um, the children that are academically gifted who will do well now will still become the lawyers and the brain surgeons and, and everything else that you need skills and qualifications for, um, academic qualifications. But the children that are fantastically compassionate and, and are going to be in our care jobs, which is a vital part of the everyday economy, who go through school and may not feel successful, why shouldn't they? They are, they are critical to our, our, in fact, it will be more so as we've got an aging population. Um, why can't we devise an education system or a reward system so that they feel confident that they can contribute to society when they grow up? So my book really explores how have we got to a point where we are, where um, we prioritize other things against the well-being and the welfare of all of our children. For example, we as citizens, as individuals, elect councils and governments that prioritize um commuters driving to work over children being able to breathe the clean air, the consequence of the non-clean air uh, around their schools when they go to school and the safety of them going on a bike or walking to school. Um, why do we allow uh, fast food restaurants, for example, to advertise in bus shelters uh, at school gates um, when the output from those companies isn't the NHS's cost of the consequence of, or the dentist's cost of the consequences of, of the outcome of response to those that advertising. Why do we find it um, easier to exclude a child that's difficult at school than to integrate them with their classmates and help their classmates understand um, uh, a wider variety of humanity of their age, of which they're going to come across all of their lives? So. You know, it kind of leads to, you know, what's kind of helicopter parenting and snowplow parenting where we move all problems away from our children because we don't want them to culturally, we don't want them to experience challenges. Yet when they're grown up, they're going to, are they going to be equipped for all sorts of challenges? It speaks to digital and the opportunities and um, challenges and mental health challenges, especially about that, of which legislation is never going to keep up with the pace of change of um of technology it speaks to my book speaks to play and why we've chosen to reduce the amount of play time in our formal structures of society like school break times are much smaller play is much less used within formal lessons now as, as a tool um in our in play time um our children's lives are much more structured than they ever used to be so play now is a ballet class or a football class which is a set of rules decided by the parents taken to by um, if they're playing with a toy they're invariably a caricatured character toy so the child's imagination to create somebody from what they've got in front of them 
is diminished and play lack of play has a consequence for all sorts of things not least our democracy um, so my book is really around challenging all of those things and then coming up with a whole load of policies of things that we could do our government could do to help more children live their lives to become the person that they've got the potential to be I have got 68 um, SAS which form a small part of the, the the book most of the book is my research and my experience but I've weaved out of those essays a com three common threads which overlaps with my um, research and work to say these are kind of the real three things that um, we need to, the heart of what we need to address if we want our children to thrive, if we want to be confident that tomorrow will be better than yesterday because our children are better equipped to cope with the challenges of tomorrow of which we don't necessarily know what they're going to be right now. But, you know, they need to have more voice in their lives, more agency, and their parents need to have an ability to shape their lives more than they do now. They're too many children are stuck in systems they can't do anything about. Uh, we need more of a variety of experience, positive experience for more children so that more children can find their purposes and their passions and their tolerances by meeting people not like them or living, experiencing environments that's not like the ones that they're used to. And then finally, we've got to... And this doesn't just apply to children, all of us, but children especially, um, are we've got to prioritise well-being, we've got to measure it, we've got to think of it as equally important, that the quality of childhoods is as important as the quantity of the qualifications or the toys or the, uh, uh, the opportunities that they have. Um, and so from some very famous people, like some of the people you've talked to, to people who are 16, 17, 18, 20 years old, who've written about their lived experience of growing up in care or growing up in a deprived area and uh, growing up in a culture that isn't the mainstream culture and the things that they found that have meant that they are not the person that they could have been um, in their early 20s or in their late teens. Um, so and it all ends in a very big, set of ideas that will scare you know the politicians i'm sure um but the brave ones and the curious ones will realize that we need some big ideas to transform our society that's my last year's work the work and i hope the next three or four years as i try to work out if enough people read this if this message gets through um you know if enough uh if the politicians and the political system can adopt those policies and if not can we create some sort of momentum that those of us that are children, young people, parents, grandparents demand that our society delivers more for the precious child in our lives and the potential that they are not being able to be fulfilled. Paul, I feel like there is so much in your brain. It's like <laughs> hard to even keep this to like, um, yeah, an actual hour podcast. But you know, even when what you're talking about there with kind of well-being being the third pillar of those sort of main themes and threads you're drawing out of your research and these essays, um, it's interesting also thinking about how that interrelates to the sense of agency and stuff. And I think I've mentioned this to you before that when mum and I did a well-being project using cultural calculator, we actually found a correlation between those who had a stronger sense of well-being had a stronger sense of personal empowerment. And how was personal empowerment defined? It was defined by a strong sense of support and connection and belonging, along with a strong sense of 
agency and independence and actually the combination of like having a voice knowing you have a voice having that sense of agency and direction when you combine that with I feel a sense of belonging I feel connected I feel supported that that creates an overall sense of empowerment. Yeah. The, it gives people the platform to be brave, to be curious, and ultimately have a stronger sense of well-being as a result because you make the decisions that are right for you and true for you. Yeah, uh, I believe in all of that. And I, as you were saying that, I was reflecting on, um, it's not really an analogy, but it's it's a little bit off what, exactly what you're saying, but I think it, it, it represents this. And this is looking at longevity and the places in the round, around the world where people live longest, they're called blue zones. There's about five around yes, the world. Yeah. They're generally in Mediterranean-type climates. Sardinia. But Sardinia is yeah. one of them. And um, But there's five, six, seven different reasons they, they say about why these people do live longer, but three of them... Um, are something about exactly what you've just talked about. One of them is um, as elderly as people age, they still have a purpose to getting up every day. It may be to feed the chickens, it may be to go and see their mate and have an espresso in the cafe, but there's a purpose to getting up. We've got to keep, keep that and make sure that more people have that purpose from whatever age they are. The second thing is that um, they take, a, a, effectively, there's a religious aspect to it. In, in the fact that they take a day off a week to do something different than they're doing in the rest of the week. So in Christian countries, it will be a Sunday. In other countries, it may be a Friday, um, Saturday. And um, that sort of opportunity to reset, to slow down, to do something different, to do something perhaps with, with, with family um, is, is important. And the third thing is family and a connected community. So they do meet people. They're not isolated. Uh, they meet people of their own age, and that's you know that's self-fulfilling in a way because more, more older people live longer. Um, but their families are connected, whether physically or um, emotionally and um, uh, uh, and remotely or digitally. But um, they are connected to people. So you know we are a social species. So having something to purpose, something to do, being with people, and having time to take time out. They're all part of that blue blue zone stuff, which will speak to your cultural calculator. And that, you know, if that's success in old age, it's also success in mid-age, in working age, and in childhood. So this leads nicely on to the final three questions we end every episode with. So the first one being, what do you think makes a great culture? Well, I will opt for the easier answer in saying it's one that prioritizes curiosity and bravery um, and I think that means um, where people feel a sense of belonging feel a sense of purpose and feel un uh, appropriately pressurized or, 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 or the, uh, uh, not to toxic level of stress a sort of copable level of stress I think stress is important to, to you so Getting that right doesn't just happen, it's act it actively happens. And I think that's part of the leadership of, of companies to help facilitate that culture where people can feel like that. They can be brave and call things out that they don't like um, or, or, or um, uh, they just want to challenge. And they can be curious about where things can go, but they feel part of um, uh, others, um, uh, part of a, a bigger thing than just themselves. Um, I think... Great cultures have 
um, uh, or you measure great cultures by a sense of what autonomy there is there for people to do their jobs by themselves without direction or without being directional um, and, you know, are prepared to take the responsibility to make their own mistakes. Um, uh, and so that's important to human beings. I think there's a sense of mastery that we are, are the culture of, of the company allows us to get better at things and try new things, but find mastery in things. And then gives us a sense of, a sense of connectedness that we are part of something bigger um, whether that's in a mission of the company or just friendships and community of our colleagues and friends at work. And to flip that on its head, what do you think makes a toxic culture? Hmm. Well, without saying, well, just the opposite of, of those things, I, I think um, I think you sense a toxic culture. It's it's taste. You can taste it almost when you when you, when you see it, and. It, it tends to be in places that don't prioritize the human. So people don't chat. They don't laugh. Rules are more important than free thinking. Um, people get rewarded for uh, obeying the rules and achieving set targets rather than their innovation or their you know, in, in intuitiveness and um, ability to, 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 th to think for themselves. Um, I think, you know, you think, well, this is not a great culture when the first thing you find out about people working there is their job title. And, you know, that's about me and it's about power and sort of contrived or, or perceived power rather than about mission. Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, there's just a, a lack of humanness there because I think it's, it's top down and, you know, that kills culture culture cannot be imposed by you know a chief executive or a board saying well this is our culture it comes from the bottom up and the scene the environment your p e the environment can be set by the the, the leaders um, and they can facilitate um, uh, the establishment of a culture the petri dish if you like but that culture has got to grow itself and you can partially control that as a leader because you control ultimately the people you employ um, and employing on sort of mindset as much as skill set or even more than skill set is important to get that culture thriving. But ultimately, you've got to let it thrive. You know, say, for example, Adela's Kitchen, little things we, I'm sure they still do, but sort of I introduced was, um, you know, free lunches every week where people came and sat together that wouldn't normally sit together. Um, we had days uh, where we would pay people to go off and do something that they'd never done before and come back and share that experience with people. Um, we would pay for clubs out of work hours where people could go off and, yes, taste cheese or do yoga or whatever they wanted to do, but at the same time, they'd get to know each other. They'd get to know that the person accepting selling the product into a new supermarket actually found out that you know they ought to be talking to the person who orders from the manufacturer who ought to be talking to the person who orders the ingredient who ought to be talking to the person who um, has the marketing budget and knows what to do with that and you know everything is connected and um, facilitating those opportunities were little things that we did and then the final thing on this I'd say about um, I guess it's about a great culture, but it's obviously missing from a toxic culture, is that bravery that I talked about um, um, and lack of bravery and people will be set impossible tasks, know they're impossible, shrug and go off and just complain to the 
outside of work of it's impossible and it's a stupid task, a stupid uh, goal. But they won't say anything. They won't be brave enough because it's been knocked out of them. Or they know it's it's not worth. It's not even worthwhile. And um, you know, tell us we used to have a, a bravery card that um, uh, like a, a, a playing card that people could play once a year effectively and say, this is my brave card. This is the one thing this year that you've got to listen to me about, you know, because it's so, so important. Yeah. And, um, uh, and and so finding little ways of helping a culture grow from the bottom are those sort of environmental enabling things that we try to do. And I think the best companies um, are those that, that create great culture. So finally, with everything you've done both I guess for society and business um leading teams but also you know now dipping into the world of political policy even what is the ultimate tip you could offer for creating cultural change for the better um I suppose it is listening that's Boil it down to one word, listen to as many people as possible and facilitate the opportunities for people to listen to each other as much as possible. You know, talking is great, but, you know, talking, me talking now, I'm not learning anything new. I'm sharing, which is great. and Hopefully there are some We're people listening. listening to this. <laughs> um, but, you know, listening, you learn. So talk half as much as you um, uh, listen and um, and learn. And so, you know, that's that's one part of it. And then and then have mechanisms where you can take that learning and and, and, and um, act upon it. Um, and they'd be the, the two simple things I would say that, that start that is a tip to start somebody thinking, I want to try and improve my my culture, listen to everybody in your organization and outside of it and help them lead what they think needs change because then they'll feel some of the ownership and um, responsibility um, for it but you're giving them the autonomy to do it well Paul thank you so much for fitting us in today into I know probably a very busy schedule of many things and you really really are such an inspiration your attitude your outlook your drive in life to make things better um yeah i think is something a lot of us can take a lot from so that's very thank kind you for being here. thank you